We do appreciate uh, everyone who's here today. We do have some visitors with us. We're glad that you're here. Uh, if you're a regular member, we're glad you're here. If you're visiting, thinking about becoming a regular member here, we're glad you're here. And if you'd like to talk to us about that, we'll try to answer any questions that, that you may have. Um, in, in his prayer, in our prayer today, Bryant mentioned our teachers. And uh, I thought I might pick up on that just a little bit, just for a moment. Uh, and uh, an appeal was made, I think, a couple of weeks ago uh, on behalf of uh, um, the, the congregation here, reaching out to people, appealing to people to get involved in the teaching program. Do have a lot of participation in that already. Don't want to suggest that we don't. But just think, we have the potential for outstanding classes here in this place. And again, I'm not saying that we don't, but with all the... The talent that we have here, the ability that we have, the experience, the knowledge that we have here among those who could teach, just have the opportunity for just wonderful classes. And when we do have wonderful classes, but get involved in that. You know, be, be a teacher. If you're not a teacher yet, learn to be a teacher. You have an opportunity to do that. And so uh, become one of the part of the teaching teams and that'll give you that opportunity. It's a good work. And you'll be accomplishing good as you help to shape the minds and shape the lives of young people as they go through, uh, go through the classes here. So I thought I would say something about that, uh, maybe just uh, supporting what Matt had to say the, the other day. Among our visitors today, we have uh, Jeff and Marla Kaysen. They were members here for several years, a few years ago, made a really good, strong contribution to the work here, and with them, are Bill and Susan Ferguson. I know them as Billy and Susie. Uh, we were college friends and college roommates together. And Bill, I thought about saying a little bit more, but I'll make a deal with you. I'll leave it right there if you will. <laughs> but we're glad, we're really glad to have them with us today. Let's go to the Gospel of John this morning. The Gospel of John, Luke tells us that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead over a period of about 40 days. That's Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, going down through a few verses there. Luke says he presented himself alive by many convincing proofs, or some versions say infallible proofs. Some strong, it's a strong word, those infallible, many convincing proofs, a very strong word that suggests demonstrable evidence. And so Jesus showed himself that he was alive, he gave evidence that he was alive, incontrovertible evidence, very strong proof that he in fact had been raised from the dead. John tells us about four of those appearances in his gospel. He uh, says that Jesus appeared to Mary uh, after he was raised from the dead, just uh, soon afterward. Then he appeared to the apostles on that same day of resurrection in a room. The door was closed. Thomas was not with them on that first occasion. And then eight days later, he appears to them again. This time Thomas is present with them. And Jesus offers his hand, you remember, to Thomas. And Thomas makes that good confession, my Lord and my God. And then in the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus appears to some of the disciples at the Sea of Galilee. And so we're going to look at John chapter 21 today and look at this appearance of Jesus at 
the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Sea of Tiberias in this account, but it's just another name for that body of water that we know of as the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has told His disciples to go there, to go to Galilee, and He would appear to them in a passage like Mark 16 and verse 7. While there, and you can kind of scan through this first section here as I tell you the content of it. While they were there and together, Peter says, well, I'm going to go fishing. Peter was a fisherman, and others of the disciples were fishermen. And so in the interim between the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they go about their business. They go, they go fishing, and others join them. You can see that in verse 3. They fish all night, and they don't catch anything. And as the day is breaking, they see an individual on the shore, and that individual calls out to them, put your net over on the right side of the boat for a large catch of fish. And so they do that. They, they put their net on the right side of the boat, and sure enough, uh, so many fish are caught that the nets begin to break. They count them later. It's 153 fish in that one, that one effort. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he recognizes this is, this is Jesus. You see, this has happened before. You can read in Luke chapter 5 of a similar situation where the disciples fished all night and they didn't catch anything. And, and the Lord tells them, try again. And, and so they do, and a great catch of fish. And so John, he no doubt remembers that. And he says to, John, he says to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord on the shore. And what do you think Peter does? He jumps in the lake and he swims to the shore, you know. He doesn't even wait to get the boat to the shore and all. He just jumps right in and he gets there. And the other disciples, they bring the boat to the shore. And they count the fish. It's 153 fish. And they see that Jesus is there and he's got a fire started. And Jesus invites them to eat with them. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. And so he had cooked some fish there on the fire, and they ate breakfast, they ate some bread, they ate some fish. In verse 14, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And then the passage that we want to look at here, beginning in verse 15. Here's our passage for today. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. I like to watch shows where they take an old car. It's beaten down. It's not running. There are a lot of things wrong with it. I can't drive it. And somebody will take it. Mechanics will take it. And they'll, they'll restore it. They'll reclaim it and it becomes a daily driver, again, useful to the owner. Or, or a house that's in disrepair, maybe nobody lives there, maybe nobody's lived there for a long time, and somebody with some knowledge and some expertise comes in and, and they fix it up and it looks great. It's, it's, it's restored, it's reclaimed. 
and it's useful once again. We're going to look at this story of restoration and reclamation today when Jesus restores Peter and puts him in, back into his service. And so Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Each time Peter responds, yes, you know that I love you. And then some instruction is given, tend my lambs or feed my sheep. Just a few observations about this as, as we begin here. Uh, first of all, you notice that Jesus uses Peter's full name. Simon, son of John, do you love me? <laughs> that adds some seriousness to the situation, doesn't it? When you were in trouble and, and your mother said, Robert David Hutto, you better get in here right now. I knew, okay, she's serious about this. And so Jesus, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This, this is a serious, solemn situation. It's been frequently observed that there are two words for love used in the passage. And so Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Agape, apagao. Uh, do, do you love me? Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, phileo. So two different words are used. And so are we to make something of that? Is that significant? Or are they just used as synonyms? Some would suggest that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me with the deepest, strongest kind of love? Are you committed to me? Are you willing to sacrifice for me? Agape. But Peter only answers, yes, Lord, I have a great deal of affection for you. Well, I don't know that that's the best reading of it, the best understanding of it. It seems to me that Peter is agreeing with and giving an affirmative answer to what Jesus says. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Yes. <laughs> doesn't say, well, no, not quite. You know, yes, I love you. Peter's answer is in the affirmative. And so I see these words being used as synonyms here. Something like would take place when a wife asks a husband, do, do you love me? And he says, yes, you know I adore you. Different words, yes, but the sentiment is very much the same. And I think that's the idea here. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, yes. You know that I, I love you. Well, Jesus asked Peter a second time and, and then a third time. In verse 17, when when Jesus asked Peter a third time, it says that he's grieved. He's upset about the fact that he's asked him three times. What's significant about the third time, about Jesus asking Peter three times? Well, I didn't really point this out as we were going through, but I'll draw your attention to it uh, now. When, when, when they bring the boat into the shore, you might remember that uh, Jesus had a charcoal fire burning, and he had some fish on it. And, well, there's another occasion in Jesus and Peter's life where a charcoal fire was involved. Do you remember when, when that was? Well, if you go back earlier in the story, you'll find the apostles are together with Jesus in the upper room. And Jesus predicts that Peter is going to deny him. He's going to deny him three times. And if you see John's account of it, maybe you'll, you'll see the connection in all this. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, says, Simon Peter, Jesus has been arrested. He's going before the, the priests, the Jews. He's going to be condemned to death. But Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. That disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. 
But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire. For it's cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was, warming, uh, was with them standing and warming himself. Situation is very similar. The setting is similar, isn't it? Here's Peter with a group of people around a charcoal fire. And Peter is being asked, are you a disciple? Do you love this man? Maybe not in those words, but are you a disciple? And now, that happens three times, and now you've got Peter and the disciples standing around a charcoal fire. <laughs> and Jesus is asking him, do you love me? Back in John chapter 18, verse 25, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, Are you not one of his disciples? And, and he denied it and said, I'm not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied it again. Immediately a rooster crowed. It's hard to miss the connections, isn't it? Uh, Peter is grieved because Jesus asked him for the third time. No doubt that Peter recalled the previous occasion when he was asked three times about his commitment to Christ, and he denied it. The text doesn't connect the two events explicitly, but it's difficult not to see this as connected to Peter's denials. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? And there are several explanations given to, to that. What does that mean, more than these? Do you love me more than the fishing equipment, more than these, these articles of fishing equipment here? And, and I think most likely, it's, do you love me more than these other men love me? Now that's, that was his claim. Back in Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 32, as Jesus is predicting that Peter will deny him three times. You remember, Peter said, even though everybody else does, I, I never will. I will never deny you. And you remember, he says, I'm ready to go to prison and even to death for you. I'm not going to deny you, even if others do. Really, Peter? Do you love me more than these? We'll have some comments about that to make as we go through. This is an exceedingly painful memory for Peter, I'm sure. His denials must have been the lowest, most disappointing moment in his life. He had to live with it for the rest of his life, didn't he? And so I, no, no doubt there were times as he went forward that he looked back on this and very, very painful memory. And now Jesus is confronting him with it. I mean, just face to face. The implications are clear. So let's draw out a few lessons in our time that we have left. First of all, look at the power of Christ to restore and reclaim. After this, after each statement, remember Jesus will say, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. All right, Peter, we've dealt with this. It's time to move forward. It's time to get to work. And so Peter is restored and he's reclaimed in all of this process. He's made a terrible mistake. His denial, it wasn't a slip of the tongue. You know, sometimes you get mad, you say something that you shouldn't, it's just sort of a, a momentary slip. That's not what, what this was. It wasn't a, a moment of pride or greed or, or lust. What could be worse than denying the Lord? What could be worse than denying the Lord again? What could be worse than denying the Lord again and again? 
And so it's a terrible, terrible mistake. And yet, Peter is restored and reclaimed. Notice that the restoration is initiated by the Lord Himself. Peter doesn't swim to shore and say, Please, Lord, please, please. It's, it's the Lord that addresses the subject. It's the Lord that initiates the, the process to restore and reclaim Peter. It is an act of sheer grace on the part of the Lord, isn't it? He initiates it. He sees it through. He deals with the situation out of His grace. He wouldn't have to, would He? After all, He could seek retribution or revenge against Peter because Peter is the one who denied Him. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of the one who's being injured, Jesus is the one who reaches out and initiates the process by which Peter is is restored. John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we see the grace of Christ at work here. 1 John 1, verse 16, For his fullness we, of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. It demonstrates the Lord's patience with sinners as well. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, The Lord does not wish that any should perish, but is patient toward you, hoping that all will come to repentance. You see, the Lord's patience with Peter could have condemned him. He certainly deserved condemnation, but the Lord is patient. And He works with Peter and gives him an opportunity to make amends. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16, there Paul refers to himself and his own experience. And the Lord, he says, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm fortunate, I'm blessed that the Lord counted me faithful, putting me into His ser service, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, a violent aggressor. I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And he goes on to say that in his situation, in his example, Jesus shows His patience, His perfect patience with sinners. See that down in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 16. And so we see the Lord's patience. We see His compassion. We see His mercy. We see His grace. And Him reaching out to Peter, the one who denied Him, reaching out to Him and restoring Him. There are examples of this throughout the Bible, aren't they? There are good examples of this kind of thing, the power of God and the willingness of God to restore and reclaim. I think about Saul of Tarsus himself. There are several passages in the writings of Paul in which he refers to, to God's reclaiming him, restoring him, bringing him in, forgiving him. And you can just hear the gratitude in, in the words that he uses 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, a moment, uh, just we read a moment ago. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into His service, even though I was a blasphemer. Calls Himself the, the foremost of all sinners. Well, look at what He's done for me in His grace and His mercy. Look where I was. Look where I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And so we see in Saul's life, the power of God to restore and reclaim. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, To the very least of all saints this grace was given to, to me to preach the, to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. 
the very least of all saints. That's how Paul describes himself. And we could go on and on. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 11, he says, I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. You think about his life before he became a Christian, what he was doing, and he says, look, I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. But God has taken me and put me into his service, and I'm extremely grateful for that. And what all this teaches us is that none of us has gone astray so far that the Lord cannot restore us. None of us has gone away so far that the Lord cannot reclaim us as His own. And it may be that you've fallen. It may be that you've made terrible errors. It may be that you consider yourself unworthy and worthless. But you're not so undone that the Lord will not restore. You may be down, but you're not out. <laughs> you see, the Lord is faithful. And if you'll return to Him, just like the father in the story of the prodigal son, if you'll return to Him, He's right there ready to receive you. Remember the words of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. If we deny Him, He'll deny us. But if we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. We may stumble and we may fall. We may make some terrible mistakes, but God is faithful. And He's ready to receive us back, restore us, reclaim us, make us useful again for His cause. A second point we'll make is the association between humility and Peter. If you think about Peter before his denial and after his denial, you can see a, really a significant change in him. You remember before his denial, I'm stronger than everybody. <laughs> it may be these other guys deny you, but, but I never will. I tell you what, I'm willing to go to prison and even to death. And you, you, that confidence, oh, that boldness, bordering on maybe some, some arrogance, but he's very bold in proclaiming his love and commitment to, to Christ. But now he's not so bold, is he? He affirms his love for Christ, but, but really nothing more. He points to Jesus' knowledge of all things rather than his own courage. There's no more, I'm stronger than them. They might, but I never will. And I'll tell you what, I'll prove it because I'm willing, to, I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing even to be put to death. Now, none of that anymore. It's just, Lord, you, you know. You know all things. You, you know that I love you. Not nearly so bold as he was before. And I think he's been brought down a notch or two. But being confronted and coming to terms with our own sin has a way of doing that to us, doesn't it? Humbling us, bringing us down a notch or two, humbling our, our pride. And it may be that you know this from personal experience. <laughs> You've been in a situation where you got caught up in some, something, and then you realize, oh no, what, what have I done? I thought I was better than that. I thought I was stronger than that. But apparently I'm not. But you know, one good thing about this, this is the first step to restoration, isn't it? This humility, this, this acknowledgement of our own weakness, our own dependency, our strength is not in ourselves. And so our sin leads to a humble mind, which leads to reclamation. 
I was mindful of the 51st Psalm. Remember that Psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba in verse 16? He says, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are, remember? Broken spirit. A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you'll not despise. A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. First step, the first step toward restoration must humble ourselves by admitting and acknowledging and being confronted with our sin, our weakness. Pride is spoken against throughout the Bible. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 17, remember there are six things that the Lord hates. Haughty eyes, I think it's the first one. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Proverbs 16 and verse 5, Pride is an abomination to the Lord. In Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction. Every now and then we'll see somebody in the news and, and we'll kind of see their story, we'll know their story. Very proud individual, very arrogant, and then all of a sudden he, is, he comes crashing down. He's caught up in some, maybe some crime even. Well, yeah, that's pride for you, isn't it? Pride goes before a fall. In Isaiah 47, so many times in the prophets, we find pride being the reason given for their destruction. It's condemned in the New Testament as well. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, we ought not to think of ourselves above what we, we're not to think of ourselves above what we ought. On the other hand, humility is to be cultivated. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Colossians chapter 3, in that, that section which enumerates or lists these qualities that Christians are developed, we find humility among them. Verse 12, So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, to clothe ourselves with humility. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You know, God, God can't do much with a proud person. A proud person is not going to yield, is not going to be, you know, malleable in God's hands. God's not able to shape him because he has his own stubborn will. But a person who's meek and humble, now God can work with that. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so you see it in Peter's life, don't you? He's humbled by his sin. All right, Peter, now you're in a spot where I can do something with you. You go tend my sheep. You go feed my lambs. And so we need to acknowledge our sin, mainly to God, but uh, there may be to others as well that we need to acknowledge our sin to, just simply humble ourselves. If we don't, we're going to be humbled by it. And so humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and... He'll lift you up. You see that in Peter. Peter's been humbled, but the Lord restores him, and reclaims him, and lifts him up. A third point we want to make is this. To be restored, sin's got to be confronted and dealt with. And, and you find that happening here in John chapter 21 in this episode beside the Sea of Galilee. You know, Jesus doesn't refer to Peter's sin explicitly, but he's confronting Peter with it nonetheless. And it's being dealt with in, in the way it has to be dealt with. 
it has to be dealt with between Peter and Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. Jesus is the one who's been harmed by it. And so Jesus has to be there. Peter has to deal with this. It has to be dealt with between the two of them. And, and the other disciples need to be there as well. They heard Jesus say, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And I imagine by this time they knew about it. And so they needed to know. They needed to hear Peter's commitment and Peter's acknowledgement of his own sin as well. And so, and so sin's got to be dealt with. It's got to be confronted. And when it is confronted and dealt with, then and only then can you kind of put it behind you and move forward. We can't avoid our sin. We've got to confront it. We've got to deal with it. We've got to confess it, confess it if we want restoration. Our tendency might just be to ignore it. Hey, maybe it'll go away. You know, I, I know I've done wrong, but, but, you know, I'll just overlook that. And maybe in time, you know, maybe everything will be forgotten. It'll just be smoothed over. In our world, one approach to sin and, and those kinds of misdeeds is, well, you know, it's just to deny the, the guilt of You really haven't done anything to feel guilty about because really there is no absolute moral standard of right and wrong. And so, you know, you, you've done your, what's right for you. And so just sort of deny and whitewash all of that and the guilt. Sometimes you hear a politician say something like, I take full responsibility for my actions in one breath and, and then start rationalizing and justifying their behavior in the next breath. None of those are really dealing with sin, are they? Not, not really. Better to face our sins, deal with them, confess our sin, and then move on. 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. I, I like as an illustration of this particular point, the 32nd Psalm. The 32nd Psalm, verse 3, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave me. You forgave the guilt of my sin. I was worried and worried. My conscience was bothering me. I couldn't sleep at night. I was wasting away. I finally decided I'm just going to confront it. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to acknowledge it and confess it to the Lord. And the Lord forgave me. Okay, it's been dealt with. And then verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. Now I can be useful. Now, now I can be reclaimed and be useful in the Lord's cause again. And so we have a responsibility to each other, just like Peter had a responsibility to the other disciples there and to, and to Christ. But mainly our responsibility is to God, isn't it? To acknowledge our sin, admit it, make no excuses, no rationalizations, confess it, allow Him to forgive, and then move forward. Which brings us to the last point. Christ restores and reclaims us for His service. After each question and response in John 21, Jesus tells Peter, Feed my lambs, tend my sheep. After the episode, Jesus places Peter in his service. You know, he goes on to do some great things, doesn't he? So here's a low, low point in Peter's life. He denies the Lord not once, not twice, three times. The Lord deals with that, confronts it, gets it out in the open, deals with it. 
And now it tells Peter, you go, you've got work to do. And then in the book of Acts, we find him doing exactly that. Preaches the first gospel sermon, Acts chapter 2, along with the others, but he seems to be the leader. He brings Gentiles into the kingdom in Acts chapter 10. He leads the church in the early days of conflict and imprisonment and martyrdom. Acts verse, chapters 3 through 5, chapter 7, chapter 12. He's a leader in preserving the purity of the gospel in Acts 15 in the controversy concerning circumcision. Peter is one of the ones who stands up and defends the gospel. Writes two New Testament epistles. And many believe that the gospel of Mark, who is a companion of Peter, is influenced by Peter as well. There's no question about the great things that Peter did in the kingdom after he was restored. We are restored so that we might work in the Lord's service. Now we might not do what Peter did. I wouldn't suggest that we can. We're not asked to do that though. The Lord doesn't ask you to do what Peter did. He asks you to do what you can do. We can work within our life circumstances. And so you think about your life circumstances, where you live, who you know, who you go to work with, the people that you attend worship with. You think about your circle, your life circumstances, and serve the Lord. That's what the Lord has restored you to do, to serve Him. Use your ability, your opportunities, your resources to advance His cause. And it may be that you had a low point the way Peter did. But if God can restore Peter to His service, He can restore us as well. Paul is thankful that God placed him in his service, though it had been opposed to the gospel, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 2. Paul tells Timothy, fulfill your ministry, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. I think he would say the same to us, fulfill your ministry. Whatever that work of service is in your life setting, you do it, fulfill it, do it to the fullest extent. Do not do nothing. Do what you can to help others along the way. And it may be that you bring people into the kingdom. It may be that you encourage your fellow citizens in the kingdom. But you do what you can in your life circumstances to help others along the way. Sometimes people are paralyzed by their sin. Maybe Judas is an extreme extreme example of that. They never overcome it. They never move forward. Perhaps Satan has convinced them their influence has been completely neutralized by their sin, which is really a reflection on Jesus' power to restore. But Peter's restoration proves otherwise, doesn't it? No, you may be down, but you're not out. None of us has gone so far astray that we're beyond the power of God to reclaim us. Don't let Satan convince you you can't do anything because of your past. Now, if you've been forgiven... It's time to get to work in your life circumstances, in your circle of friends and acquaintances. Time to get to work. And Peter shows us that. Well, I hope these comments about this particular episode have been helpful to us, encouraging to us, thought-provoking. That's what they've intended to be. It's It's a great scene in Jesus and Peter's life and one that I think we can learn a lot from. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your mercy. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful, Father, for your patience and your compassion. We're thankful, Father, that even though we have turned aside to our own ways, 
that we've sinned. In, in some cases, very serious sins, very, very terrible mistakes. And yet, Father, you reach out to us and you're willing to restore us. You're willing to bring us back into your fold. We see it over and over again in the scriptures. And this morning we've looked especially at the example of Peter. What a, an inspiration that is to us, how encouraging it is to us. Help us, Father, to take advantage of this opportunity to be forgiven. Father, help us to confront our sin, acknowledge it before you, even though it may humble us. Help us, Father, to acknowledge it so that it might be dealt with effectively and we can move on. And help us, Father, to devote ourselves to your service. Help us to be grateful for what you've done to us and try to repay that act of grace and kindness with a life's work in your service. And Father, we pray that you'll help us with these things, that you'll continue to work with us and be patient with us as we go about our lives, tempting to do good for you. We pray for the doors of opportunity to be opened up to us so that we might serve you among our fellow, fellow man. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning, you're subject to